we should say that we are a little bit slow operating today for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, Dave was hoping to have a more comprehensive broadcast today, but we had some connectivity issues, so hopefully next week that will resolve. We've had a bad, I've had a bad week, so I'll talk about that in a minute. Let's see. Ah, February the 21st. Excuse me, 2021, lecture discussion number 130 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. Uh, This is going to be potluck today, a buffet approach. We're coming back after two weeks off, and and so uh, I've got to trying to pull a bunch of pieces together that I don't want to lose if I wait. And so that's what I'm going to try to do today. Before we recover to where we were previously, uh, probably should update the digital audience uh, as to my latest contact with the emergency services at Providence Hospital. You can tell my voice is shot because down goes the esophageal tube and all of that stuff. (sighs) Pretty brutal. I'm a repeat customer, unfortunately, despite my best efforts to avoid recurrence. But uh, alas, uh, apparently I'm aged now, and I better just get used to it. I prefer venerable, but uh, obviously I'm elderly, and I'm decrepit, and I'm fossilized, as the children would say, ancient. That appears to be more uh, more accurate uh, analysis of my current physical condition. So uh, what happened to me? What went awry this time, and what's left of me? Uh, it was acute renal failure, the left kidney specifically. Fortuitously, we are designed to have d- designed to have two kidneys. Uh, nonetheless, the experience is not pleasant. If you go through this, uh, you will commiserate with me, and you will write me letters of how did you make it, and I will write you back. I don't know. The experience is not pleasant. In fact, it's torturesome. Uh, The pain level is well beyond anything I've ever experienced before. And I've had some tough goes occasionally. And as I just said, I'm I'm an old person. You would think I would have some kind of measurable uh, experience. But this is absolutely singular in my past or my lifetime. Lots of writhing and moaning and vomiting and screaming and weeping. Uh, I found out I was an eight-year-old girl again. Uh, A whiny little baby, turns out. The kidneys, big surprise, duh, are critically important. Gotta have kidneys. Hopefully you have both, preferably you have both kidneys. Kidney function is fascinating, and uh, I just can't can't believe what it does. And it's it primarily is to filter the blood. Uh, cons- consider kidney operation as cleansing of blood, or the cleansing of the blood. So cleansing and blood are put together. Well, my goodness, that's obviously a theological implication. The cleansing of blood. So I am intrigued. By it. I'm also intrigued by the duality in the body, as you all know. Living beings have a Genesis 2-7 duality. That's what the Bible says. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, 722, 617, 619, Ecclesiastes 12, 6, and 7. All of those are talking about the fact that we have a body, but we have something that is uh, the spirit of the breath of life system, if you want to think of it that way. It's, it's consciousness, it's the mind, it's the soul, it's the controlling entity of what this is, what, what God calls a living being. So, the, in fact, it's identified as, what is, what the, as causing, in other words, I put it this way, the combining of the living soul or the mind, the consciousness, 
the breath and the body that is that results into a living being. Both are required for the for what we think is alive to be a living being. Again, what we think is alive and, and a living being are not necessarily the same thing. Again, this Genesis two seven two seven defines what is a living being, and it is a combination of the breath of the spirit of life and and the body, the physical body. So I've said that thousands of times. I can never say it enough. I never know who's tuning in. There's always one person that's never heard it. I find that in my letters all the time. So I can't help myself to to keep revisiting it because I recognize the value of it, especially in these times that we see ourselves in. Anyway, the Bible is submerged, if you want to think of it that way, drenched in dualities or dualism. It is absolutely marinated. I'll give you just some quick examples. I have the, this contrast. I have the New Jerusalem. I have the Lake of Fire. I have the bread and the cup of communion. I have two birds of Leviticus. I have two lampstands, two trees, two witnesses, two stone tablets, two testaments. I have darkness and light, good from evil men and angels, the God-man, the hypostatic union, the joining of God and the adding of humanity to the infinite God. I have the Satan-man, the joining of Satan and the Antichrist. I have life and death, and there's two definitions of life and two definitions of death. I have sheep and goats, male and female. Animals were brought to the ark of, of every sort. Genesis 6.19, two. Uh, two olive trees, Israel, the church, Jew and Gentile, first and last, two Adams, Cain and Abel. And that's just hardly any. The Bible is, again, soaked in duality. It's incontestably soaked. There is this intentioned duality, a purpose duality in Scripture. So obvious question. Why has God done this? What is He saying? Again, the dualism is unavoidable, unmistakable. My feeble little list that I just read off quickly uh, hardly begins to reveal the pattern. Make your own list someday. See what... Bring a lunch, pack a lunch, go to Costco first. Because you're going to need a lot of portions here to get through that duality. And, and, I, and because I have this congenital heart defect on my resume, uh, I thought it would be necessary to investigate the human heart, as you know. I did it recently. I made wonderful pictures that sold for tens of thousands of nothing. Uh, but the heart has two atrials, or two atriums, if you wish to think of it that way. It has two ventricles. It has a sinoatrial sino node. It has an atrial ventricular node. That's the electrical system. Um, it has systole and diastole, which is your contractile and relaxation system, the lub-dub of the heart, if you will. It has ascending aorta and descending aorta. It has a superior vena cava and an inferior vena cava. It has afferents and efferents. This the neurological signals between the brain and the heart. Uh, I can I don't want to be tedious about it. That's my predisposition, as you know. I could just keep going and going and going inside the body, outside the body. Scripture, it's just astonishing this duality that's there. Uh, let me just really quickly. You, obviously, we have a brain, and what is it? It has two hemispheres, the left and the right hemisphere. We have the, the pulmonary system, the lungs, the left and right lung. I have two eyes, a left and a right eye. I have two nostrils, two hands, feet, two legs, arms, ears. All of us are two-faced. In other words, the face, if you were to look at a mirror of each side and separate it, you would find that there's a complete distinction that's both an attempt at humor, but it's also a truth. Our face is divided, each side separated from the other. So to repeat the question, why did he do it this way? He didn't have to do it this way. That's not true because of omniscience. We'll get to that in a second. But what's his message? The intention for this design, this architecture that he has, if you will. He's the architect. And again, omniscience makes it the only option. It had to be this way. Because he's omniscient, he's infinite, he's outside of time. This is the way it must be. Omniscience would, would discard any other option. There aren't any options when omniscience is, is in the center of it. 
My favorite dualistic system, as you are aware, is quantum entanglement. And that, of course, is more of a mirror. But a mirror is, of course, a duality. The reflection is the reflection of duality. And that brings me back to my latest fixation, um, or fascination, whichever you prefer, the two kidneys. I have two kidneys. And they're... And they, they draw them sort of like this. I'm not, I'm not as good as they are. And I have ureters and I have a bladder and all of this stuff. And right, I should mention right now what they did to me. And that's, don't, 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 uh, I have a prostate. But they stuck a shunt, a stent, sorry, into that ureter on my left side. That has been very discomforting. And it's still there. Because I have uh, I have very large stones. One, the one that they've destroyed so far was seven millimeter, which would not fit through the ureter. And if it had tried to go through there, it would have been really difficult. So what they do is what I had, of course, is a uh, a laser lithotripsy, which they go up and they shoot and blast away. What had happened to me is that that seven millimeter uh, obstruction got right to where he could hit it as he went up that, that stent. In any event, that was a interesting time for me. So I wanted to know everything I could about this cleansing system. We have a cleansing, a blood cleaning system in the body. Why? It goes back to why is there immunity and all of those other questions that I brought Apparently, each time I will have a medical failure, I will obsessively investigate the system to which it has become defective. Right? That seems to be it. I'm working my way all the way up to uh, multiple degrees of some kind that I can fake. Anyhow, I'm thinking about the why. I'm considering the why uh, of all of this. Uh, Aside from... Why do I do it? That's one thing. I get asked that a lot. What's the matter with you? <laughs> Why do you do this? Uh, aside from innate peculiarity, uh, I don't really have an answer. Some of you have kindly said eccentricity. I will take that. Yes, sir? You can't help yourself. I can't help myself. I know it's been this way for a long time, but I just can't. And uh, I have a new word that uh, I... It's called uh, idiot syncrasy. <laughs> That's what I think. Uh, anyhow, the kidneys clean the blood, uh, a blood cleansing system. It's a wait for it, it's two step process, which of course it's a two step process. The blood enters the kid- kidneys. You have the abdominal aorta, and there's, there's renal uh, arteries coming off of the of that. And so, uh, blood enters the kidneys through the renal arteries, and this filtration begins. And it's always happening to you. And if it stops happening to you, that's not good. And of course, it be stopped happening to me because uh, seven millimeter. And that this is interesting. I thought it because of my oxalate level and my calcium level. I have low calcium because of the electrolytes in my heart, but I have high oxalates, which are almonds and nuts and things like that. Well, that combination has a tendency to create very large stones in the kidneys. I didn't know that until lately. But unfortunately for my excitement that if I could just control my oxalate and and increase my calcium slightly, I'd probably get rid of these kidney stone formations. But this turned out to be a uric-based kidney, uric acid-based. Uric acid means that they finally caught me. I'm drinking a case of beer a week, I guess, somehow. I'm not. I'm not kidding. But... uh, it's it's not what I thought it was until I found out I didn't know. Anyway, where am I? The glomerulus, I'm sorry, glomerulus, uh, it, it redirects excess fluids into the t- tubules. And both of those little things comprise uh, the filter, if you will, the nephrom. And there are a million nephrums in each kidney. 
that's how it filters blood. So you have two th- a two-stage process and you have two parts to the same stage. Essentially, the system separates good from evil. It separates uh, red blood cells and proteins from waste and minerals, which I found to be fascinating. My nephrons were ca- compromised. My serum creatinine was uh, elevated to uh, 3.3. That won't mean anything to you unless you go through this. A normal, a normal uh, creatinine level is 0. Uh, uh, 0.5 to 1.5. Mine is 3.3, three times normal. It still is, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's pretty close. It's not good. It wasn't good when I went in there. At first, the emergency doctors uh, thought that I had a dissected aorta. They thought that that aorta busted. Uh, dissected, which means the blood gets under one one membrane and, and begins to bulge on the outside. And if it breaks, of course, that's really bad. That would have been lamentable, to say the least. Dissected aortas are a serious emergency. But I had so much pain. Uh, my stomach hurt everywhere. It hurt in the front. It hurt in the back. I, 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 and I was just lying there screaming. I did not represent Cliffside very well. But uh, fortunately for me, my uh, aorta was intact, but uh, 3.3 milligrams per deciliter of creatinine level indicates acute renal failure. Now, that doesn't mean anything to anybody who's not listening to this and who hasn't. If you've gone through it, you know exactly what I'm telling you. Uh, What I had was blood toxicity, and if it continued to rise, and the evidence at the time was that it was ascending, they could not get it under control, well, eventually, five milligrams per deciliter of creatinine, uh, that results in mechanical dialysis. So that's where I was. I don't remember what day it was now. I think it was Wednesday. I made two trips to the emergency room. The first day, they gave me drugs and said, just go home, you'll pass the kidney stone. Well, it turned out that it's not passable. They didn't know that. They didn't give me a CTI scan. So I come home, I barely make it through the night. I'm screaming the next day again. I go back and they find my creatinine level uh, was way too high and they give me a uh, a CTI scan. And I put on quite the show. They're wheeling me down to the CTI device and I'm vomiting. I'm very professional. I have a high fever. Uh, I was over 102, 103. I am... Volcanically uh, vomiting. I'm screaming like a like I'm a child. Uh, they think, of course, that I might be COVID positive. So here I am in the hallway, uh, down in the bowels of the hospital, waiting for my turn, and I'm vomiting like crazy. And this really nice gentleman that's pushing me. I believe he was uh, Nigerian. He his English was not perfect, but it was enough to, uh, that I could figure out what both of us needed to do. And he's blocking this hallway. And there's people stopping at the very ends of the hallway. They won't come down because this thing, me, is down there just vomiting like crazy into these green bags. And I'm going through one green bag after another. And I can't stop it. Nothing I can do. And at home, I filled up that. So a tremendous amount of vomiting before I even got there. So it was a bad day. I'm not having a pleasant visit at the time to the emergency services sector of the hospital. And I should mention that uh, kidney pain resides alone in its classification. I am testimony, I'm a testimonial. My testimonial is that that's true. In other words, the agony, the torment, the intensity, absolutely brutal. Unmatched, never felt anything like it. I can't even explain it. And, and I've been made aware of the equivalency proposed that kidney pain is similar to childbirth. Oh, childbirth. <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I don't have any commentary. I can't provide commentary on the value or the issue of childbirth. I, but uh, that uh, usually doesn't stop me from having an opinion. It, it is resolvable. All that's required to solve the question is to survey women who have had kidney stones and have given birth. Pretty simple, right? So that's what I'm doing while I'm in the hospital. 
I ask everybody who comes into my room, they look at this pathetic curled up piece of junk sitting there, laying there. What's wrong with you, sir? Kidney stone. They all go, oh, we're so sorry. My first question is, you ever had one? And if there's a woman, have you ever given birth? Which one's worse? That's what I did. I conducted my own statistical survey. And the answer was, is that the kidney stone was worse. And I thought, wow. So I can walk around, some woman never points at me and says, you have never given birth to a child. I could say, I've had a kidney stone. Seven millimeter kidney stone. At least you got a baby. (laughs) Anyway, having a kidney stone lodged in the ureter is profound misery. No narcotic was effective. They gave me fentanyl. That did nothing. There was nothing they could do for me. Hydrocodone with acetaminophen, nothing. Didn't work. Toradol. Uh, the only help you get is you endure until the anesthesiologist arrives. That's why you do it. And that is my favorite part of any t- of this, as you know. As soon as an anesthesiologist comes into my realm, uh, then I begin to get happy. I delight in discussing topics with anesthesiologists, specifically consciousness, because anesthesiology and consciousness uh, is, wow, I mean, you just, they are locked together. Again, to repeat, the anesthesiology profession has no idea how they're doing what they're doing. It's just been, over time, they have figured out a system that works but they don't know what it is they're doing. It's a complete mystery. Consciousness is a mystery. I will say this right off the bat. Consciousness cannot be extinguished. That's something that I can easily prove. It doesn't take a great intellect to prove it. It just takes a system of logic that's obviously clear. But it cannot be extinguished. Consciousness, that's the breath of the spirit of life, and it is not subject to a physical process. And that consciousness is not dependent on physical properties. It exists outside of physical properties. And that again is Genesis 2.7. It defines that, that particular truth. And it's easy to, to recognize that it is being true. Physical death, I say it all the time, is a physical process. It's a physical property. Consciousness is not physical and is not subject to that, to physical death. And that is a, a fantastic piece of information. Uh, again, that's easy to prove. So I, I begin the conversation with, I begin this conversation with every anesthesiologist that has asked me to sign the liability waiver because that's what they do. They come in and they say, you're going into surgery, I'm the anesthesiologist, sign the liability waiver. And so that gives me my opportunity to ask them, which side in the anesthesiology community do you reside? Do you reside with the uh, with the uh, group that? Uh, and again, anesthesiology is is drenched in consciousness, and there is a large section of them of that community that advocate for extinguishment. In other words, they will say to you, whenever we put you into an anesthetic condition, we have taken your consciousness away and you're in a death state. And they will tell you that, uh, they they tell me, you have died three times, Mr. Chronister. And I say, no, I have not. I have not died three times. You are not extinguishing consciousness. Consciousness. Now, what are they doing then? And we're going to get to that in a minute. Because included into this debate is remembrance. Remembering. Which is a subject of extraordinary theological implications. Remember that Christ calls himself a bunch of things. One of them is the I am that I am. Exodus 3, 6, 3, 14. Because he's outside of time, he is always in the presence. That is a time reference. He is the beginning and the end. Everything consists in him. That is infinity. He describes himself as outside of time and infinity. He also brings up that he is the infinite, omniscient rememberer. The divine rememberer, Genesis 8, 1, Genesis 9, 16, Genesis 19, uh, 29, Exodus 2, 24. 
Luke 23, 42 through 43, Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, Daniel 7, 9 through 10, and Daniel 7, 22. He is the divine rememberer, the one who remembers. See, that's what anesthesiology is tied to because they will argue they destroyed your consciousness and I will say, you just blocked my memory. So, all I have to do is recover the memory of what went on in this in this surgery and I will have all the memory of all of that pain and every conversation. But you have blocked it. So I'm not I'm not able to retrieve it. So it's the blocking of memory. It's forgetfulness, if you wish to think of it that way. Christ says that He is the rememberer. The, he is God, the rememberer. So remembering is something that is in the domain of the Lord God of creation. It is very complicated, extremely mis- mysterious. Hebrews eight twelve. Jeremiah 50.20, Jeremiah 31.34 For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Let me repeat that. I'll read it again. My goodness. Think about what he's saying here. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember them no more. Their sin and no more. This is a great promise from God Himself, the divine rememberer, can't say it enough, the infinite omniscient one pledges to remember no more the sins of the saved. He won't do it. Now, how is that possible? How can God forget? Again, He's omniscient. That means He knows all things. If you forget something, the implication is is that you don't know it. How can he forget? Does he forget? What does this have to do with anesthesiology and consciousness? I hope it's obvious why these discussions are so fantastic when you're about to sign the anesthesiology waiver. I ask these questions. Obviously, if Jesus God, Acts 2.32, God himself in the flesh, the word made flesh, remembers you and writes your name in his Lamb's book of life, Revelation 13.8, then you are included in the saved. Your eternal existence will be in the new city of Jerusalem from above, Revelation 21, and he will remember your sins no more. And that's why the thief on the cross, I got two thieves just saying, more duality. He asked Jesus to do something to for him. What did he ask him to do? He said, please remember me. Because he recognized that Christ was the rememberer. What a fantastic doctrinal understanding he had. At the, at the, you're incredibly focused when you're dying. <sighs> he's essentially requesting that Christ, he's saying to Christ, and Christ, again, is the I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. He's saying, write my name down in your book of life. Write me down. Because that equals remember me. If you write me down, then I am remembered. When you write me down, I am forever remembered. And I want to be forever remembered. Do not forget me. Again, how can God forget Can God forget anything? So remember me is a a well-advised request for one to make to the Lord God of creation before your silver cord is loosed. Cry out two things, if you will. I give you two pieces of advice. Lord Jesus, remember me. Write my name down in the Lamb's book of life. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's, That's where you go before the silver cord is loosed. I should say this. I get so many people. I was talking to a young man yesterday about it. There's so many people that tell me the silver cord is 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 the spinal column or it's, uh, in fact, you know, the, the blood cleansing system would be bowls, all of this stuff. They never pay attention in Ecclesiastes 12, 6, and 7 that the whole subject is the spirit of the breath of life. So the silver cord is clearly... The silver is the breath of the spirit of life that returns to him who gave it. How you can have any other position astonishes me, but it is out there nonetheless. 
<laughs> so, with all that said, the law of information is absolutely clear. Information cannot be destroyed. Uh, your sins are information. So, same question. How does the infinite God, the omniscient God, not remember? I'm going to use the word forget just because it's fun to do. In this. How does God forget the sin of the redeemed? What's the next obvious question? If he does not remember the sins of the redeemed, does he remember the sins of the lost? And if he remembers the sins of the lost, how is it that he would not remember? When he says, I won't remember, what does he mean? Anyway, moving on. How does Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, the judge of all things, John 5.22, how does the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7.9, 7.22, Revelation 1.12 through 20, all of those are the same description of him. So is Matthew 17. How does he forget? How does he remember no more? That doesn't make any sense on the surface. I'm trying to make you fight with it. The fundamental of all of that is that he is the judge of all things. And if you are the judge of all things, the fundamental of being the judge of all things is that you have to have omniscience. That means you have to know the hearts and the mind of everyone who comes before you. You have to know all the evidence and all the evidences. And which is why Jesus states that he is the one, he says in Revelation 2.23, I am the one who searches the minds and the heart. And you, I've asked a hundred times, what is he searching for? He is able to judge sin because he's omniscient. He's also able to judge sin, sin because he is sinless. So he's qualified. Only someone who is sinless can judge sin. So he has to know all the sins. I've asked many, many times, what is he searching for in the hearts and the minds? And I think that's pretty obvious. We'll get to that in a minute. Many places this question is answered. One of the places probably the best in my mind is uh, Acts 16. Paul answers what the Ancient of Days is searching for when he searches the minds and the heart. He answers it beautifully. Paul depossesses a certain slave girl there. I don't have time to read it. Well, I got a late start, didn't I? I'm, how, how is my time? I can't go by that, can I? You have half an hour. Wow. Golly. Well, let me see. I'm going really fast, huh? So I'm trying to get a bunch of stuff in because I have missed two weeks. And it's possible that I will be back into surgery this week. Uh, Acts 16. You're welcome. Just read a little bit of this. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. I want you to try to imagine now with this whole thing. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And ultimately, Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. So let's back up here. Paul depossesses a certain slave girl. He removes the demon from her. The certain slave girl was following Paul and Silas, and she's crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And Paul was greatly annoyed. Now, you would assume, wouldn't you, that he's greatly annoyed by this screaming girl and what she is screaming. I would suggest that you be patient before you leap to conclusions. Why do you suppose Paul was greatly annoyed? 
it would seem that this certain slave girl was advocating for Paul and Silas that she was what she was saying was uh, consummately correct and Paul and Silas were in fact servants of the most high God and they were pro- proclaiming the way to salvation the way to salvation and one might be inclined to see the certain slave girl certain slave girl as free advertising she's right there in line with you one if you one thought that and many do but that would be neglecting something pretty important what would it be neglecting you would be neglecting the demon component why would the demon shout out and bring attention to the one way to salvation for days i had a demon in this girl and him and the girl, and the demon and the girl, were shouting out, These guys are the servants of the Most High God, and they know the way to salvation. And he does it, he and the girl, in their little combination, do it for days and days and days. Finally, Paul stops it. Paul knew the motive of the demon. That's the key question. For the Christian who's reading it, do we know the motive of the demon? He immediately knew the motive of the demon. Um, I should interject that the certain slave girl had, was of significant economic value. She had a contingency around her. She had within her a demon who had access to information, and as you know, information is commercial, commercially lucrative even in those days as it is today. Paul removes a certain slave girl's co-conspirator and thereby does what to the enterprise? She com- he completely destroys her mercantile viability, doesn't he? Boom, gone. Her owners respond, as you heard me read, by arresting Paul and Silas, imprisoning them, and chaining them, proving once again that no good deed goes unshackled. Lots to work through here, just to get to the point, because the point is, yea, a point. That is Acts 16:25 through 34, that I have not read yet, purposely, because I am a highly trained religious professional. Obviously, the demon possessed certain slave girl and her contingent of business partners, if you wish to call them that way, her owners, somehow. They were following Paul and Silas. Now, why are they following Paul and Silas? What's their reason? They have a reason. Why not follow Joe and Betty? But they're following Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are doing something that's more to them them than just Paul and Silas. But they're doing something that is impressive. What is it that they're doing? They're attracting people. What are they attracting people with? The truth of the method of salvation to the Most High God. They know it. The one way. And that's drawing a crowd. And I have a business. I follow them. I take advantage of the crowd, don't I? So they're following, and that's what I believe they're doing. And how close do they follow along where they're screaming, screaming demon-possessed certain cash cow slave girl? How loud did the certain slave girl scream? And, and, and when would she scream? Try to just assess the process. I submit that Paul and Silas, who knew the one way in which man can be saved, were revealing that one way, and the demon was motivated to who what? To help them? No, to stop them, to impede them, to be, how do I put it, disruptive, to do what he could with this girl and her business partners, Stockholders, this is the beginning of the of the stock exchange, which is, as you know, oh my gosh, I followed this recent uh, GameStop situation just because I'm interested in statistical mathematics. The stock market is operated for the benefit of the people who operate the stock market. Now, I know lots of people have 501ks and they have all these different systems. 
and they like to speculate and day trading and all of that stuff. But you're going up against computers that are fantastically faster than you. And it is designed to make money for them and not make money for you, individually especially. So I would suggest that you be a little bit more, how do I put it, conservative. That's just me. I have a portfolio that is completely unassailable by the stock market. Hmm. Cannot hurt me. Anyway, where am I? I just want you to think about what's going on. Paul and Silas know the one way that man can be saved, because there's only one way. And they were revealing that. And this demon is, is using this screaming certain girl to stop it. But it seems like he is helping. So there's your fantastic lesson in my mind. As obvious uh, uh, would then be the financial, the capitalization aspect of the traveling screaming demon possessed certain slave girl. As Paul and Silas would gather a crowd, proclaim the one means of salvation, then that crowd would obviously hear the screaming girl. And the screaming girl would what? Would draw away from the crowd, wouldn't they? And they would seem like they're together, but they're not together. This is very reminiscent of the blackbirds that would devour the seeds in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 3 through 9. The blackbirds of the air would nest in the mustard tree, Matthew 13, 31 through 34. This is side by side. One is destructive the other one is life giving one is death one is life and note that I have concluded that the birds of Matthew 13 are birds of death that they are black birds the birds of death have gathered around the truth of life and we should always expect that especially Christians this is where the Bereans and scripture are so valuable yeah if we like what you say we'll go test it and then Peter talks about these men who have great flowing words of emptiness emptiness that lead to death. The Apostle Paul has the authority to extract the demon and separate the wicked one from the certain slave girl and end the screaming and therefore terminate and bankrupt the business, the screaming girl business. He can blow it up anytime he wants. He waits and then finally he does it. Why does he wait? Because Paul knows something. He knows what will happen when he stops it. But eventually he stops it. It must have been quite a shock to the shareholders. Unforeseen difficulty. He can get the demon out of the girl. Bad news for everyone who owns stock in the girl. And that causes a whole bunch of obvious questions, but let's try the first one. How did they know, the stockholders, the shareholders, how many were there, do you think, following her around, getting a piece of everything they could? And what are they selling? What's the commodity? i got a screaming girl. Come over here and give us money. How did they know that the screaming girl, who's the essential employee, isn't she, had lost, they should, be, they should have insured her, essential uh, employee insurance. How did they know that she had lost the accomplice of the demon? Because Paul calls him out, boom, and he's gone. How did they know? Because they quickly figure it out, and what do they do? They attack Paul and Cyrus. Silas, sorry. They knew that the certain uh, slave girl was now worthless, and they knew why, and they knew who. Paul was the agency that made her worthless. They leapt immediately to, they, to cause and correlation. They saw Paul, they heard what he said, and they saw the correlation and the cause. No hesitation. How did they know? Did you just stop screaming? Why aren't you screaming? You should be screaming. We need you to scream. Every time you scream, we make money. How are they making money off of this girl and the demon? 
How do they know? What did they see? Did that certain slave girl change in any way when that demon left her? Uh, for example, the man who had the legion of demons in Luke 835, what did he do when the demons left him? And he had a bunch. He sat at the feet of Christ. And he was in his right mind. I submit that it's obvious that the certain slave girl returned to her right mind and thus she ended her remunerative functionality. Bad news. What will they do to her now that she no longer has a demon? How much danger is she in? And Paul and Silas were beaten and whipped and thrown into jail for getting rid of a demon out of a certain girl. Why? And I'm going to make it clear, I hope I have made it clear, that Paul was not annoyed by the girl. He was annoyed by the demon. He knew what the demon was doing and why he was doing it and how he was... How he was the demon's motive versus the owner's motive. The owners are the shareholders or stockholders. They're doing it for money. The demon's doing it for evil. So Paul shuts it down. What does that remind you of? If you said temple cleansing by Christ, then you're in the right right parameter. So he's annoyed by the tactics of the demon, seemingly proclaiming the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, because that's what he's doing, isn't it? The demon screaming through the girl was saying, Jesus Christ alone is salvation, exactly what Paul and Silas are doing, and those that are with them. Why would the demon do it? Why would the demon impersonate? I'm giving you the answer while I'm asking the question. Why would he masquerade as someone who declares Christ? Why do people masquerade as someone who portrays, uh, declares Christ? Because it happens all the time. You know there's a lengthy record, a lengthy portfolio, if you think of it that way, through human history of people who are frauds preaching about Christ. They know they're lying. They lie on purpose. Why do they lie? They who say words that appear to be genuine but are uttered by those who seek what? What are they looking for? Profit. You watch it on TV every day. It's horrible. They have no interest at all in the truth of Christ. They're after the money. And Paul is what? He has experience. He's he's a Pharisee, ex-Pharisee. He knows about the money system. The wealth that is in religion. Is there wealth in religion? There's so much money in religion, it's, it's stupefying. Paul would know very well all the techniques. The religion for money crowd. I have been asked so many times to sing at these different cults that come to Anchorage. And I tell them that I'm an unbelievable singer. You will not believe my singing capability. When people hear me sing, there's a reaction no one will ever forget. <laughs> and they're they all excited. I, my favorite story was some, I, okay, I won't name him Benny Yen, but he came to Anchorage and uh, they asked me to be on stage and would I want to sing in the pastor's choir. I said, oh, I absolutely would want to sing in the pastor's choir. And they, they were a little bit suspicious of my eagerness. And I told them that all I wanted was one popcorn bucket of money. Because they had popcorn buckets that they would pass around. They were literally four feet high. And they would pass them around and they would fill them full of money and checks. So every time I read Acts 16, I think about that. I could single-handedly empty that entire Sullivan Arena by just singing maybe Five minutes. So me and the screaming girl kind of have a kinship. I sing pretty much like a screaming girl. My trumpet playing isn't much better. But again, we know that you have money and a crowd. You will have religious frauds. You will have counterfeits. You will have great swelling words of emptiness. You will have tricks and scams. And it will 
it will twist people away from the truth. They will believe the, the lies. They will believe that you we're right here with these guys. We're the same as them. Look, they're on my stage. I was asked to be on the stage of uh, Sun Yet Moon as well. So it's happened to me enough to where I finally figured out why. The brood of vipers, the temple merchants, what were they doing? Why did Christ overturn the temple merchants and overturn the tables and clean them out? Because they're in his house. That is the house of God. That is the only house of God is the temple of Israel. And he throws them out because they're selling salvation. And the masters and the owners and the demon, and they're using the screaming girl to sell salvation. How are they making money off of her again? Anyway, Paul and Silas are beaten their clothes are torn off. They're tossed into the inner prison, the most secure place of the prison, and they're going to be left there to die. All because they got rid of the selling of salvation. And lots of questions arise. Why such a harsh reaction from a multitude? If you go on to read it, and I don't have time, the multitude here, they uh, go right after them. Why do they go after them? Well, they tell you, I read it. Paul and Silas were Jews in Rome, Acts 16.20. Jews were despised at, in Rome at the time, even though uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. So to speed ahead really fast, an earthquake is sent. I want to know, is it a specific earthquake? Targeted earthquake? Or was it citywide, all of Rome? And what happened? The prison doors of the inner prison were destroyed. So literally torn loose from their hinges and from the walls at which they were attached. The shackles that Paul and Silas and all the prisoners were also torn loose from the walls. And the keeper of the prison, if you read the story, please do, he knew that if the prisoners escaped, somebody got executed. Who got executed? He did. That's right. So he's, he's in a panic. And he thought that they had, they had escaped. Why couldn't they escape? The whole place was a mess. Everybody's gone. The walls are probably down. The inner prison is is loosed. And so he takes he decides he's gonna kill himself. And he's gotta kill himself. Why does he have to kill himself? Why doesn't he run? Because they're gonna find him. And if they don't find him, who are they gonna find? His family. So he's gotta kill himself. Why doesn't he wait to be executed? Well, that's obvious. Because that's worse than kidney stones that's bad that's torture that's a long death so he's going to kill himself and Paul cried out to him called out to the keeper loud voice it said how loud was Paul's voice all of that chaos and he says don't harm yourself and ultimately the keeper falls down before Paul and Silas and says sirs What must I do to be saved? How does he know this? We have an earthquake, you're still here, and I want to know what must I do to be saved. He put the earthquake to Paul and Silas, didn't he? How did he do that? How did he know that Paul and Silas had the answer to salvation? Because they didn't have a trial doesn't appear to be. They're just thrown in prison. But he knew Paul and Silas were preaching about salvation and destroyed the screaming girl counterfeit, or what you would call the competitor. Obviously, the prison keeper recognized this supernatural intervention had occurred, and he knew why Paul and Silas had been jailed and had been beaten. Who do you suppose beat them? Who's the most likely one to beat Paul and Silas? The keeper. And Paul and Silas don't run so that the keeper can live. And the keeper says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers him. He says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think the screaming girl said? Do this. Paul said, believe. Believe what Christ says about himself. John 11.25, John 8.12, John 8.24, John 20.30-31. 
Believe that he, Christ, is the I am that I am. Every time Christ says I am, he's saying I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. (coughs) Believe that he is the Genesis 1.3, light of life. It says that in John 8.12. Believe that he's the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. Believe that everything consists in Christ, uh, Colossians 1.15-18. Believe that all things were made through Christ Jesus. Without him, nothing that was was made. John 1, 1 through 3. Search and find everything that Jesus Christ says about himself and believe it. He's telling you the truth. Everything. Believe him. Whosoever calls upon the name of Christ will be saved. Paul wrote that, quoted Joel 2.32 and Romans 10.13. There is no money. There is no price. Salvation is a gift on all you do to, to receive the gift of salvation is to believe him okay quickly Mary Ann from Arkansas wrote me a letter wonderful letter really long can't read it no time but Mary Ann wanted to know why Adam's body was made from dust why were the animals bodies made from dust. The Genesis 2-7 process I was talking to Dave earlier this week. When the, when the body of Adam was made, uh, who was watching? Adam wasn't watching. When the body of the, of the animals were made, who's watching? Animals are not watching. The process that was the body and then the breath blown into them, if you want to think of it that way, or put into them, of the animals was the same for Adam as it was for them. Anyway, God could have spoken their bodies into existence from nothingness, but that's not what he did. He used the dust. He took the ground. He took the minerals. He took the dirt. And that's our first clue. Our second clue is that our bodies return to the dust. Genesis 3.19. Our breath of the spirit of life returns to him. Ecclesiastes 12.6-7. Why dust is the same question ultimately is why is there this duality in us? Why is there this duality in the Bible? Why is this duality everywhere in entanglement, for example? As you know, the biblical holism movement denies duality, says there isn't any duality, says, as does the evolutionary philosophers and the monism and the physicalists and the atheists and all of media and all academia pretty much. Obviously, the process of the formation of the bodies of living beings is done for the only ones who witnessed it both animal and human. The animal body is laying there and then it becomes a living being. The human body is laying there and then it becomes a human being. And they saw the cause and the correlation of what made that happen. And they knew who did it and they began to know why he did it. And those who stayed with God rejoiced. Job 38.7 And therefore that must, the fact that it was witnessed by the angelic realm, must reflect the condition of the mineral earth of Ezekiel 28.13, after the fall of Satan and his angels. The minerals of Ezekiel 28.13 are used to make the bodies of living beings. The breath of God is just placed into the bodies and the life is declared and duality is established. The ultimate duality is the solution to darkness that no man but God, no mind but God himself could conceive. That's First Timothy 3.16. That's the greatest of all mysteries, the mysteries of godliness. Okay. Now, get to this. Uh, I'm setting that aside for just a second. Last lecture, I asked, you shall not return the way you came. What does that mean? How does that testify of Christ? Because it has to. That's First Kings 23. 2 Kings 23. And many of you noted correctly, you know, uh, eat no water, uh, eat no bread, drink no water, do not return the same way you came. It's the three prohibitions. And many of you figured out really fast that uh, don't go back the way you came had something to do with the court of Daniel. Matthew 2. The descendants of those men that Daniel saved from extinction Saved from execution, sorry. That's the court of Daniel that came at Matthew 2. And they were also told, do not return the way that you came. 
avoid Herod. And Christ, however, does and will return to the way that he left, Acts 1.11. The Christ child is taken to Egypt, Matthew 2, by order of an angel. An angel says, take him to Egypt. And Herod kills every male child two years and younger that he can get his hands on. And there is great weeping in Israel. Could Herod kill Christ? Of course not. He's omnipotent God. Hidden. Why does God hide himself? Psalm 10. That's why that question is so important. I'm going to say some things. God Christ is the rememberer. That is why Adam's body was made from dust. So I have answered Mary Ann's question. She might not be happy with that answer. Because it may not be as clear and obvious as she would like. So I'll make it more obvious. If you ask, why did he make Adam's body from dust and the animal's bodies from dust? Why do we have this duality? And what is this remembrance? Those are all the same question. So when you figure those out, you put them together and you see what he's doing. He makes you from dust. He makes this duality because he's the rememberer. And that's where we will stop. Till next week when I answer it again. <laughs>